Well, Saints, um, I believe we're going to have a very special conference together. I'm glad that, um, that you can see me in London and possibly other parts of Europe. I, I miss going there physically. But I, I think, again, that these four messages will be quite special. I'd like to just read you uh, the general subject for this conference may surprise you. It says, Noah, Daniel, and Job, patterns of living and overcoming life on the line of life to fulfill the economy of God. Now, you may wonder, you may read this title and same as me. I mean, why do we say Noah, Daniel, and Job are patterns of living and overcoming life? To fulfill God's economy. Well, saints, even, even cons we have a scriptural basis, and I'll read this to you in a little bit, but I think it would surprise us that God put Job in the same category as Noah and Daniel. Now, let me read you. Uh, there are two verses in the book of Ezekiel which speak of these three uh, people who were on the line of life, uh, speak of them together, and that's uh, Ezekiel 14, verse 14, and Ezekiel 14, verse 20. You'll see that it's the first two verses in the scripture reading. And saints, what we have, I'll share a little bit more of the background uh, after we read these verses, but what was happening at this time was that God was bringing all his judgments upon Israel, mainly because of their terrible idolatry, just terrible. So um, God said this. He, he said uh, in verse 14, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the midst of it, that's Jerusalem, they would deliver only their own souls by their righteousness, declares the Lord Jehovah. And then verse 20 says, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the midst of it, as I live, declares the Lord Jehovah, they could not deliver even a son or daughter. They would deliver only their own souls by their righteousness. So, uh, here we have a situation, and we'll talk about why these three are mentioned together, is God was bringing all his judgments upon Jerusalem, like I said, mainly because of their terrible degradation, apostasy, and idolatry. And he, God pointed out that even if the most excellent ones of the earth would be found in this land, which Jehovah judged, they would not hinder the execution of his judgment at all. They would only save their own lives by their righteousness. Now, uh, let me just, again, I'd like to share a little bit, little bit, bit of background before we get into the significance of these three uh, patterns on the line of life to fulfill God's economy. Now, to show you how bad, 
the idolatry was. In Ezekiel 14, 3, the Lord says to Ezekiel, he says, son of man, these men, you know, meaning even the leaders among uh, the people in Jerusalem, the priests, the, you know, the scribes. He says, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. This shows that an idol is not just something physical, outside of people. There can be idols in our heart. We have to remember that. They set up their idols in their hearts, and they put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Now, in the first note on this verse, it says an idol in our heart is anything within us that we love more than the Lord and that replaces the Lord in our life. So anything we love more than the Lord is an idol in our heart. Anything in our heart that replaces the Lord as the preeminent one in our heart is also an idol. So what happened? There were idols even in the temple. And because of that, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, what you can see is that the glory of God withdrew step by step. It withdrew first from the temple, then from the city, and finally from the people. So the glory of God eventually left the whole, uh, you know, the, the people of Israel. Now, thank the Lord Ezekiel was there. You know, in the first three verses, it's very, I love these verses, and I hope we would, we would pray over them in a personal way. Ezekiel says this. I'll just read these phrases to you. He says, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. I hope that in this conference even, we would ask the Lord, Lord, open the heavens to me and open my inner eyes so that I can truly see visions of God. Then it goes on to say that the word of Jehovah came expressly to him. It was an express word to Ezekiel. We need the Lord's express speaking to us. It's his particular speaking to us, his vital speaking to us, his, uh, his applied speaking to us, his up-to-date speaking to us. Then uh, Ezekiel goes on to say, the book of Ezekiel, it says the hand of Jehovah was upon Ezekiel. Now what this means is this. When the Lord speaks something, if it's genuinely his speaking, he will accomplish what he speaks. His hand will follow his speaking to accomplish what he speaks. Not only that, uh, the Lord's hand, the hand of Jehovah, is for leading man and causing man to take action. And because it leads us, causes us to take action, his hand limits us at the same time. So you've got these characteristics here. Now in Ezekiel 3, these are the first four verses, I'll just summarize them. I, I like what the Lord says to Ezekiel. He puts a scroll before Ezekiel, which we can liken to, to the Bible. Here's what he says to Ezekiel. He says, eat this scroll. I like that. He doesn't say study this scroll. 
no doubt we have to prayerfully study. If we study prayerfully, we'll be eating. But the emphasis here is eat this scroll. Go to the house of Israel, listen to this, and speak with my words to them, with my words, not with your words, with my words. So you have these three verbs, eat, go, speak. Saints, this should be our, the way we live out Christ, the way we live Christ, is we eat Christ by eating his words. After we eat, that eating, that life supply that we get from him as our nutrients propels us to go to God's people. So it's eat, go. And then when we go, when we go to the people, we speak to them. And we don't speak with our words, we speak with the Lord's words to them. Why? Because we have eaten his words. When you truly eat his words, by praying over his words, and by praying his words back to God, even with simple prayers, that word will, uh, it, it will, your spirit, the light in your spirit will spread out into your mind and enlighten your mind to such an extent that those very words will become a part of your memory. And so when you go to people, you will speak with the Lord's words to them spontaneously, spontaneously. Okay, now, um, let, let me say this as a preface, and we're going to look at this again through the glasses of God's economy, and I want to emphasize this again as we did in the, our last training together, that in our reading of the Bible, we need to focus our attention on God's eternal economy for the divine dispensing. And unless we know God's economy, we will not understand the Bible. And in God's economy, God's intention with us is to make us a man of God who is constituted with God according to his divine economy. Now, th this statement that I'll make next to you, I believe, is in the outline, but we always have to have this before us when we get into God's holy word. And this is this, that the Bible of 66 books is for only one thing. It's for God in Christ by the Spirit to dispense himself into us. Saints, we just, I have a prayer in me right now that God would dispense himself into all of you and dispense himself into me in these meetings. So God in Christ by the Spirit is to dispense himself into us to be our life, our nature, and our everything so that we may live Christ and express Christ. This should be the principle that governs our life. Isn't that wonderful? We have a life principle, and it is God's economy with his divine dispensing. Now, we saw in the last training that we need God to dispense himself into us. Whatever we pass through, 
all of us are passing through something, some kind of trial or, or suffering or a particular thing. Well, in the midst of whatever we're passing through, we need to pray, Lord, have mercy on me that in the middle of my situation right now, I would gain God as much as possible. And we always need to realize that our standing before God is based upon how much God we have gained. And our basic problem, our basic problem in everything is that we're short of God. When you're even saints, we can testify when we wake up earlier and spend time with the Lord in the morning uh, to, uh, to really get infused with him, to spend time being infused with God, spend an adequate amount of time with God so that you can be infused with him. Don't just go through the motions. Spend that time to be infused with God so that when you come out of your room, you are glowing with God and you are shining forth God. If you're a sister, you shine forth God into your husband. If you're a husband, you shine forth God into your wife and, and your children also, of course. So, uh, saints, we can testify. Even if our time with the Lord in the morning, we don't get infused with God and we don't get refilled with God. I would say it that way. Um, we're going to have some problems. We're going to have some problems. And saints, we know when we're short of God, well, I'll give a physical example. You know, of course, we know that for automobiles, oil is a very important uh, element of every automobile, unless it's an electric car. We're in the modern age now. I'm talking about older cars. But if you don't have an adequate amount of oil in there, let's say you're driving along, all of a sudden smoke is coming out from the hood of your car. You open up the hood and there's, there's a, a stick in there, kind of a stick, where it, it goes deep in there and it measures how much oil is in there. You pull out the stick and you see there's hardly any oil in my engine. That's why it's smoking. Well, saints, when we are short of God as our golden oil, we will, there will just be smoke. There won't be the flowing of oil out of us, but there'll be something not so good. So saints, if we gain God every day, uh, you know, of course, Philippians 3, 8, uh, Paul said, he said that he counted everything as loss on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And he said, on account of whom I suffer the loss of all things, listen to this, that I may gain Christ. So he has these words, gain Christ, which is to gain God. Christ is the very God. Now, saints, Philippians was written many years after Paul's conversion. One uh, expositor, which Brother Lee liked very much, estimated that Paul might have been converted 26 years or so after he wrote this. I think you can look at our recovery version, the dates. It might have a different span there. 
But anyway, it was well over 20 years, but Paul was not satisfied. He was not a contented person. He still wanted to gain more of Christ. So in verse 14, he said, I pursue toward the goal for the prize to which God in Christ Jesus has called me upward. Now, saints, always remember this. I pursue toward the goal. What is our goal? When, when you get up tomorrow morning, you have, you have to have a goal. And this should be your goal. Every day, our goal should be the fullest enjoyment of Christ and the fullest gaining of Christ. So, our goal is the fullest enjoyment of Christ and gaining of Christ. And then, um, you know, that is to gain Christ, the fullest enjoyment of Christ, the fullest gaining of Christ. And that is the goal in verse 14. And verse 14 says, for the prize, that's in the next age. Our prize will be the uttermost enjoyment of Christ in the millennial kingdom. Now, I'm talking about, when we talk about gaining Christ or gaining God, we are talking about enjoying God, the fullest enjoyment of, of God, uh, the fullest gaining of God every day. They go together. If you gain God, if you gain Christ, you will enjoy Christ. And saints, this is not a doctrine. This is a, a reality. The enjoyment of Christ, the genuine enjoyment of Christ solves all the problems in the church through the work of the cross. You know, recently some of us were, were uh, you know, trying to shepherd some saints who had, you know, they had been wounded in some way or they were discouraged. And I remember speaking to them about the enjoyment of Christ you know, I said, don't let anything take your joy away from you. Maintain your enjoyment of Christ. I just felt like that, it just didn't penetrate with them. It was just, even though they had heard this this many, many times, uh, it was just, I think they were in the realm, let's solve this problem, let's solve that problem. Well, you can solve these problems, but if you don't enjoy Christ, you miss the very point that God is trying to drive you to, to enjoy Christ, to gain Christ. So that's why Paul said in the last verse of 2 Corinthians 1, which is verse 24, he said, we are fellow workers with you for your joy. Saints, when we work together, when we are God's co-workers, when we work together with the saints, we need to realize that it's for their joy. Are we bringing the ones we care for into the enjoyment of Christ? I like what the Amplified Bible says uh, for this verse. It says, we work with you for the increase of your joy. Saints, uh, the ones we're caring for, we need to pray, Lord, Increase their joy. Increase their enjoyment of you. Increase my enjoyment of you. So this is, it goes together with gaining God, which is to gain Christ, 
which is also to enjoy Christ. Now, I would like to make this statement, and, and uh, we're talking about being an overcomer here, and uh, we might think that for me to be an overcomer is impossible. Well, that's true. For you by yourself to be an overcomer is, is impossible. But I have good news for you. The Lord Jesus only takes up impossible cases. Can you imagine if a doctor, if you told a doctor, doctor, I would look to, like you to put a sign on your clinic that says, only impossible cases allowed. That doctor would never put a sign like that on his clinic because he would lose mostly all of his business. But the Lord Jesus, that is all he takes up. He's our physician. He only takes up impossible cases. That's us. That's us. We are impossible cases. Now, in Luke 18... I'd like to just share with you, you will remember this in Luke 18, this uh, rich, young uh, ruler or young man came to the Lord and he said, Lord, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord said, you know the commandments, you shall not steal, you shall not do this. And the Lord spoke maybe four or five commandments to them. And then this young man said, he said, Lord, I've done this my whole life. My whole life I've done this. And the Lord said this to him. He said, still, you lack one thing. Saints, it may be that we feel, oh, I've done this, I've done that. But I think we can all confess, we still lack one thing. There's one thing with us that the Lord leaves to remind us of our weakness, just like the thorn that Paul had. Uh, it, it reminded him of his utter helplessness. He needed Christ as his grace all the time. Well, eventually the Lord told him, you need to sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you have treasure in the heavens and come follow me. Now that doesn't mean we all need to actually give up all our physical um, our, our physical um, supply to follow the Lord. But the Lord was making a point with this young man. And um, so the young man left. He didn't follow the Lord. Now, if that young man, that, that rich young man, if he had said to the Lord, Lord, I cannot do this one thing. It's impossible for me, but I still want to follow you. What should I do? The Lord would have said, just follow me and you will see. You will see. But he didn't do that. He left. Well, in verse 27 of the same chapter, actually just before this, the Lord says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that's, that's quite an example. But you know what the Lord is able to do? He's able to take a camel, this is a physical example, of course, and spin that camel into thin thread to put it through 
the eye of a needle into the kingdom of God. We're, we're the camels. How are we going to get through the eye of a needle? Through our circumstances, our situations, our sufferings, our trials, our gaining God, our enjoying God. We get spun into a thin piece of thread to enter into the kingdom of God. So, but then the Lord concludes this way in verse 27. He says, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. We, we should always remember that. Now, it's very telling. In the very next chapter, this statement is proved. Remember, this was a rich young man. And right after that, the Lord talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And then I think it was Peter. He said, Lord, who, who could be saved? And he said, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Well, if you go to the next chapter in Luke 19, 2, as the Lord was passing through Jericho, it says this, Behold, there was a man whose name was called Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. Now listen to these next words. And he was rich. And he was rich. So even though he was rich, in human terms, it was impossible for him to enter into the kingdom of God. But in God's eyes, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So it was possible for this rich Zacchaeus to enter into the kingdom of God. And he did enter into the kingdom of God, uh, which most of you know, if you don't, you can read chapter 19. Now, I would just say this statement to you from the ministry, which I, is encouragement. It says this, to be a Christian and an overcomer. Now, even to be a Christian and an overcomer is not merely difficult. It is impossible. Only the process tr consummated triune God living in us as the all-inclusive spirit can be a Christian and an overcomer. So we just need to realize I need to exercise my spirit to touch the Lord as the spirit. Actually, the Lord himself is the unique overcomer. He's the capital O overcomer in our spirit. We need to enjoy this one, touch this one, gain this one, and then spontaneously he will be lived out through us and we will be a genuine Christian and a genuine overcomer because, because we are living Christ. We are living because of Christ and we are allowing Christ to live through us, live through us. You know, I'll just say one final verse, then we'll get into the outlines. This is Luke 1, 37 and 38. And the background of this is when uh, Mary went to visit uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, by that time, was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary, of course, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon her. Matthew 1, 18, 18 and 20 say that which was begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so the angelic messenger told Mary this. And I like what Mary said. I hope we all would have this attitude. 
he said this, this is the angelic messenger, so this is God's word. He says, no word will be impossible with God. And then Mary said this, I like this, we all need to say this, behold, a slave of the Lord, may it happen to me according to your word. We should all have that prayer to the Lord and have that attitude toward the Lord. Now, let's come to the outline and in the outline, we will see why Noah, Daniel, and Job are put together by the Lord in just an amazing way as patterns of living and overcoming life on the line of life to fulfill God's economy. All right, we'll come to Roman numeral one. Roman numeral one says Noah, Daniel, and Job are patterns revealing how we can live an overcoming life on the line of life to fulfill the economy of God. This is to live and work according to the vision of the age to change the age. So we need to live and work according to the vision of the age to change the age. We need to see the vision of the age. We need to live according to the vision of the age, and our labor should be to work out the vision of the age. Now, um, you know, in the book of Job, uh, it says that, you know, at the end of Job, well, we know, we'll, we'll come to Job here in a minute, but I would just like to say this initially, you remember at, at the beginning of Job, Job was, uh, was stricken with terrible suffering, terrible, terrible suffering, almost indescribable. It got to a point where even his wife, you know, you're going through things. You expect your wife, at least your wife's going to support you. Well, eventually she said to Job, she said, curse God and die. Can you imagine that? It's terrible. So, but right after that, it says, Job cursed the day of his birth. He didn't curse God, but he cursed the day of his birth. He was so, you know, I shouldn't even, even have been born. What's happening to me is so bad. Well, his three, Job's three friends came to him. And when they saw him, they wept. They sat down with him on the ground, and they wept profusely. They sat down with him for seven days, day and night, and they didn't say one thing. That was the best thing they did in the book of Job. Sometimes when you shepherd people, the Lord will lead you not to say anything because what that person needs at that moment is just your physical presence. He may need you to say something, yes, but sometimes it's just to be there with him. Well, thank the Lord by the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, 5, uh, Job said this, after everything had happened and God appeared to Job, Job said this, he said, in Job 42, 5, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear 
but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job heard about God in a doctrinal way. And, and saints, I think we realize that a lot of things that we, we hear about in meetings may be just objective doctrine to us. When, when we pass through trials or sufferings, calling on the Lord becomes much more precious to us. Pray reading becomes much more real to us. We become much more real with God. And the more real we are with God, the more real he is to us. So Job saw God. And saints, the more we see God, know God, and love God, the more we abhor ourselves and deny ourselves. You know, the word abhor, A-B-H-O-R, is even more than hate ourselves, because if you look up the word abhor, it means to regard with horror, H-O-R-R-O-R. -R -R. That means you just, with yourself, it just, it's more than hate. You regard yourself with absolute horror or loathing. And at the same time, you love the Lord to the uttermost. This should be our case. All right, now we've got a number of verses on here. And um, the first verses, uh, group of verses, Gen in Genesis 2, Revelation 2, and Revelation 22, talk about the tree of life, the tree of life, eating the tree of life. If we're, we are going to live on the line of light to fulfill God's economy, we need to eat Christ every day as the tree of life. And um, Revelation 2.7 tells us that actually this will be our reward in the millennial kingdom. But in order to have that reward, we need to enjoy that in day by day. So we need to eat of the tree of life every day. And then when we get into the millennial kingdom, we will eat of Christ to the, as the tree of life to the uttermost. And saints, always remember this. Eating Christ as the tree of life, which is enjoying Christ as our life supply, should be the primary matter in the church life. Do not forget this statement. It's a sentence in one of the footnotes on Revelation 2.7. This sentence, uh, I would say, you know, a number of years ago flashed into my being because I, it made me realize this is not my primary matter in the church life right now. I have other primary matters. My primary matter is to serve the Lord. My primary matter may be to preach the gospel. My primary matter may be to get with the saints. And we need to do all of these things. But saints, the primary matter in the church life is for us to eat Christ as the tree of life. That is to enjoy Christ as our life supply. If you don't eat Christ, there's no way you can minister Christ to others. Now, when you come to eternity in Revelation 22, we see a river of water of life flowing out of the throne of God 
and, I, and of the land, and on this side and on that side of the river, there is the tree of life uh, for us to eat and enjoy. Now, we've got these verses from Matthew 24 here. This speaks about the end days, which we are in. And in the last days, these verses from Matthew 24 says they will be like the days of Noah. It says, in the days of Noah, just as in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, that Greek word for coming is parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, which means presence. Now, saints, if we don't enjoy the Lord's presence today, how are we going to enjoy the Lord's presence when we, when we have the fullness of his presence at his coming? So we have to realize we are in the days of Noah, and the Lord is very close to coming again. So we need to be like Noah, and we will see this. We need to be ones who are building the ark. We'll see what that means a little later and later in the conference. Now, in Matthew 24, these verses, still in Matthew 24, 45 through 41, tells us that if we are going to be faithful and prudent slaves, we need to be those who give God's people food at the proper time. When the Lord comes back, he should find us giving his people food, spiritual food, giving his household food. If when he comes back and he sees us doing that, it says he will set us over all his possessions. That is the reward in the kingdom age. Now, there's a lot of verses here, but just a, 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 there's two more verses in Acts 26, 19. We know that Paul uh, gave his testimony in Acts 26. He was talking to King Agrippa, and he said, King Agrippa, I want to let you know that I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That means, conversely, Paul was a person throughout his whole life, from the time of his conversion, he was someone who was obedient to the heavenly vision. And what is this heavenly vision? It is the heavenly vision of God's eternal economy, of God's eternal economy. Okay, now, um, let's do this. Let's go to Roman numeral two now. The lives of Noah, Daniel, and Job reveal the triune God dispensing himself into his chosen people to fulfill his economy. Now, saints, consider this. We always have to look at the Bible through these glasses of the triune God, uh, of the triune God's economy and of the triune God dispensing himself into us for his economy. Well, you have three names here, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Why three names? Because those three names point to the divine trinity, the three in the divine trinity. Now look at, look at A, this shows you this. With Noah, we see God the Father in his desire and plan for his building. 
and in his eternal faithfulness in keeping his covenant, his word. So again, with Noah, we can see God the Father, especially in his plan for his building and in his faithfulness for keeping his covenant, his word. You remember God told Noah that, you know, when you see a rainbow, a rainbow, that is a sign, that rainbow in the clouds is a sign of, of the covenant that I'm making with you that, uh, that I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and I will never again, you know, flood the earth with waters to destroy all flesh. That is God's covenant. That rainbow is a sign of his covenant. Now, saints, uh, you know, if you consider the rainbow, a rainbow is composed of three basic colors, three basic colors, and that is blue, red, and yellow. Blue, red, and yellow. Now, blue, Ezekiel 1 talks about the sapphire throne. That's where the color blue is. Red uh, points to the matter of fire, the fire of God's holiness, which you see in Ezekiel 1. Yellow points to this material called the electrum in Ezekiel 1, which signifies God's glory. So with blue, red, and yellow, you have righteousness, holiness, and glory. Now, these attributes of the triune God, righteousness, holiness, and glory, were the very attributes that prevented man from, from enjoying Christ as the tree of life after his fall. We know that after man's fall, God guarded the tree of life in Genesis 3.24, it says there was a flaming sword turning every way. There were cherubim there guarding the way to the tree of life. And I always wondered why did God do that? Well, the reason why God did that is he didn't want man to partake of him as the tree of life because if he did, man would live forever with his sinful nature. God didn't want that. God wanted to meet the demands of his holiness, righteousness, and glory on the cross to take away sin so that he could dispense himself into man as the tree of life. Now, what's amazing is this, saints. Those very attributes that kept us away from Christ as the tree of life, because of Christ's death, he has met the demands of God's righteousness, holiness, and glory, and now the way is open to eat him and enjoy him as the tree of life. And when we do this, when we do this, okay, how do I say this? I'll say it this way. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says that Christ is wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness is signified by the color blue, like I said. Sanctification is holiness. 
that's signified by the color red. Um, then you have uh, you have righteousness, holiness. I'm sorry, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Redemption there is the redemption of our body that signifies God's glory that is signified by the color yellow. So he's wisdom to us from God, both righteousness, sanctification, and redemption or glory, the redemption of our body. What this shows is that the very attributes, the triune God, that prevented us from enjoying him, enjoying him as the tree of life, have been, those demands have been met, and now by enjoying him as the tree of life, those very attributes are dispensed into our being to make us an exhibition of God's righteousness, holiness, and glory. When you come to Revelation 21 and you look at verses 19 through 20, you can look at the footnotes. The foundations of the new Jerusalem have, when you put them together, together they have the appearance of a rainbow. What that means is that, saints, for eternity, of course, typologically, we will become a rainbow, a rainbow testifying of God's faithfulness, testifying of God's righteousness, holiness, and glory to the whole universe. So this is an amazing, amazing thing. Now let's come to B. B goes on to Daniel. With Daniel, we see Christ, the Son, as the centrality and universality of God's move and his second coming as the Son of Man. We can see this in these verses, Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Daniel 7 speaks of Christ the Son in his second coming, uh, and Daniel 10 speaks of Christ as the Son of Man with all kinds of marvelous um, uh, descriptors and, and uh, adjectives, and you can read them and look at the footnotes. And one of the things in the footnotes that I enjoyed is it says that, that the Lord, as the Son of Man, he appeared to Daniel, listen to this, for Daniel's appreciation, for Daniel's consolation, encouragement, expectation, and stabilization. All of that happens to us when the Lord appears to us. But in these portions of Daniel, you can see Christ the Son as the centrality and universality of God's move and his second coming as the Son of Man. All right, now we'll come to C. C says, with Job, we see God the Spirit in his transforming work to carry out what is hidden in God's heart that we might gain God to become God in life, in nature, and in appearance, but not in the Godhead for the corporate expression of God. So this is very apparent, saints, that with Job, of course, we see God the Spirit there in his transforming work. We saw in the training in Job 10:13. Job was going through all this suffering, but in Job 10, 13, he told God, you know, he kind of told God, I don't know what's going on, but I know that you have these, I know that you have 
hidden these things in your heart. I know that this is with you. In other words, Job knew that something was hidden in God's heart concerning him, but he didn't know what it was. Well, you have to go to Ephesians 3, 9 to see what is hidden in God's heart. Ephesians 3, 9 talks about the economy of the mystery, which has been hidden in God. So what is hidden in God's heart is his economy. And so saints, whatever we are passing through, whatever kind of trial, suffering, whatever person, situation, uh, atmosphere, environment, we're passing through. What's hidden in God's heart for us is his economy. And practically speaking, that means his divine dispensing for his economy. In other words, uh, in what we're passing through, in whatever situation we're in right now, what is hidden in God's heart for you and me, even as I'm speaking, is he wants to dispense himself into us for the accomplishing of his economy. That's what is hidden in his heart. And of course, 2 Corinthians 3.18 points this out. It says that we have an, when, we, when we turn our hearts to the Lord, our face is unveiled, and we're beholding and reflecting like a mirror the glory of the Lord. And when we're doing that, we are in the process of being transformed into the same image of the resurrected and glorified Christ. And we are going on from one degree of glory to another degree of glory until eventually we fully become the new Jerusalem, which according to Revelation 21, 10 and 11, it says the new Jerusalem has the glory of God and the glory of God is the corporate expression of God. So saints, I want you to consider these three items. With, with Noah, you can see God the Father. With Daniel, you can see Christ the Son. And with Job, you can see God the Spirit. And uh, again, you see God the Father in the aspects of uh, his faithfulness and uh, his, his righteousness, holiness, and glory. With Daniel, we see Christ the Son as God's centrality and universality, and in his second coming as the Son of Man. And with Job, we see God the Spirit in his transforming work to carry out what is hidden in his heart, which is God's economy with God's divine dispensing for God's glory. Now, let's come to Noah, and the next message will be fully on Noah. This will be a precursor of this. Of course, at this time in Genesis 6, it tells us the wickedness of man was very great in the earth. And we can testify this is the case today. We're living just like the days of Noah. And we, we could never imagine that there would be such wickedness as we see today. It says violence filled the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Then we come to Roman numeral three. It says, but Noah, but Noah. Now, I'd just like to stop there. Listen to this. At the bottom of man's fall, 
There is always a but, in quotes. There's always a but. With you, when you were at the bottom, there was a but. But Ed. Ed was going this way, but Ed. But Ed was regenerated. Then Ed didn't know what to do when he was regenerated. But Ed came into the church in Houston. At the bottom of man's wall, there is always a but. Now let's go on with this but. It says, but Noah found grace in the sight of Jehovah. Our translation says favor. We can also translate that as grace. And he says, that, says this, Noah's life and work reveal how much grace can do for, God, for fallen people. Grace is the wonderful Christ as our burden bearer, doing everything in us on our behalf for our enjoyment. Of course, we'll see this about Noah in the next message, but I don't know if you've considered this, that grace is the wonderful Christ as our burden bearer. We have certain, sometimes we're bearing a burden we, we feel is intolerable. We can't face certain situations. Well, when we really enjoy the Lord as grace, grace becomes our burden bearer. And, it, and grace does everything in us on our behalf for our enjoyment. Okay, there's a lot of verses here to show us this. I'll just mention 2 Corinthians 12. You remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh here? He entreated the Lord three times to remove this thorn. And the Lord said to, finally said to Paul, he indicated to Paul that he was not going to remove the thorn. And he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ might tabernacle over me. Now, saints, um, I remember watching my knee said this. This was really striking to me. He said two words are very precious to me. Now just think about what are those, what would those two words be that were precious to Watchman Nee? Here's what he said. These two words are very precious to me. Utter helplessness. Utter helplessness. When you have that realization, then God can be everything to you. When you realize that you are utterly helpless and that you need him as grace in everything and for everything, then he can be everything to you because his power is perfected in weakness. You know, many times we can't even stand the situation we're in. We can't face what's happening to us. But when we enjoy the Lord, when we experience the Lord as grace, as our enjoyment, that grace flowing into our being and flowing out of us is able to face that situation in us and through us. Now, let's read one under here. It says, the flesh is the presence of the devil and grace is the presence of God. In order for us to face the presence of Satan, we need the presence of God. 
Now, the flesh is the presence of the devil. Romans 7 shows us this. And again, I can't get into it. I encourage you to read these verses that I've cited here with the notes. The flesh is the presence of the devil, but praise the Lord. Galatians 6.18 tells us that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with our spirit. So grace is with our spirit. Grace is in our spirit. And uh, grace is the presence of God. Uh, the flesh is the presence of the devil. And the presence of God always, 100%, 1,000%, overcomes the presence of the devil. This is why we need to exercise our spirit. Ask the Lord, Lord, keep me in my spirit. We are in our spirit. We are saved from the flesh as the presence of the devil, and we are filled with the presence of God. Now we come to two. Two says the issue of grace is righteousness. By the power of grace, the strength of grace, and the life of grace, we can be right with God, right with one another, and even right with ourselves. So I've got Romans 5, 17 and 21 here. Verse 17 of 5 says we need to be those who receive the abundance of grace. And every day we need to say, Lord, I like to open my entire being to you without reservation to receive you as the abundance of the enjoyment of the triune God. If we do that, Romans 5.21 indicates that grace will actually reign in us. Grace will ruin us. In other words, grace is God in Christ as the Spirit for our enjoyment. So that enjoyment of the triune God actually reigns in us. So when we talk in Hebrews 4.16 about coming forward to the throne of grace, that throne of grace is actually the person of Christ himself. That throne of grace is grace reigning in us. It is Christ as grace ruling in us and reigning in us. Now let's come to B. B says Noah walked with God just like Enoch did previous to him, and he built the ark for the carrying out of the divine economy. Now, under, the, under B, one says, the first building of God in the scriptures is Noah's ark. What does Noah's ark signify? It signifies Christ as the building of God and man. Now, listen to this next statement. This next statement is so powerful. I remember when I first read this, I was, wow, this is really great. Listen to this. God's building is a God-man. God builds himself into man. God builds man into God. This is God's building. Eventually, the ultimate building in the universe is the new Jerusalem in which God is fully built into man and man is fully built into God. We see the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21.3 is the tabernacle of God for God to dwell in. And then in Revelation 21.22, 22, 
we see that the New Jerusalem has the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb as its temple for us to dwell in. So this shows that we are built into God as our temple. He is built into us as his tabernacle. This is the mutual abode of God and man. So the New Jerusalem is God's great building. The New Jerusalem is a great God-man. So uh, this is what the ark signifies. Of course, we know in this age, Christ wants to build the church as the body of Christ to eventually consummate in the New Jerusalem. Now we come to two. Two says the building of the ark typifies the building of the corporate Christ. The church as the body of Christ with the element of Christ's riches as the building material. These verses are very clear on this. Now three says, the three stories of the ark. Again, here we have to look at the Bible with the glasses of God's eternal economy and with the glasses of the processed and consummated triune God dispensing himself into our tripartite being to build himself into our being for the building of God into man and man into God uh, which again is a great God-man. God's building is a God-man. Now this ark has three stories. What do these three stories signify? Let me read on. They signify the triune God according to our experience of him. So it goes on to say the spirit signified by the lower story brings us to the sun and the Son brings us higher in our experience to the Father. So the Spirit brings us to the Son, and the Son brings us to the Father. Again, you read these verses. These verses show us this. Now, number four says, on the third story of the ark. You know, saints, if, if my home has three stories, uh, and in the third story, you know, is, is where... Maybe my, my uh, our master bedroom is, my study is there, the precious things that I have, you know, which to me are my life studies and the books on the ministry, maybe they're there, you know, but I will only have certain people up to that third, third floor, people who I'm intimate with. I just don't have anybody go to the third floor. So in like manner, we need to have an intimacy with God to such an extent that we experience the Spirit bringing us to the Son and the Son bringing us to the third story of God the Father as love and light. Now, 4 says, on the third story of the ark, there was only one window toward the heavens, signifying that in the church, God's building there is only one revelation and one vision through the one New Testament ministry. Isn't that wonderful, saints? I just think that's wonderful. There's only one window in the ark. And that one window, again, it signifies. Let me go back. I want to get this exactly right. This 
one window signifies that in the church, God's building, there is only one revelation and one vision through the one New Testament ministry. What is that one revelation, that one vision? It is the heavenly vision of God's eternal economy, God's eternal economy. All right, now let's come to Roman numeral four. This will give us a snapshot of Daniel, who points to God the Son. It says, but Daniel, again, you have the word but there. But Daniel set his heart not to defile himself with the king's choice provision. You remember the king told uh, one of his stewards, with all these young men that we have, I want you to feed them with the best food so that they are healthy looking. And uh, of course, he fed them with, the, he was going to feed them with, with, with certain foods that the Daniel and his companions were unclean foods. So Daniel implored uh, the steward. He said, just give us seven days and of eating our own diet and see what we look like after seven days. So he did this. And it says, he set his heart not to defile himself with the king's choice provision. Now, when Daniel did this, after those seven days, his, uh, I'm using my terms, he and his companions, their complexion, their aura, A-U-R-A, was full of brightness. They were full of health. Uh, their appearance was glowing much more than the ones that ate the king's choice provision. Now, we'll see a little bit about Daniel and A. It says, all those who are used by God to turn the age are today's Nazarites, those who offer themselves willingly to the Lord in the splendor of their consecration. Number six, speaks about the Nazarite vow. I hope we would our vow to the Lord would be up to date, that we would always separate ourselves from our natural man with our natural affection, from worldly pleasure, from rebellion, and from death. But you could look at the footnotes on this. It's wonderful. Instead of being in our natural man, we need to live according to our spirit. We need to separate ourselves from earthly pleasure. Christ should be our pleasure. We need to separate ourselves from the rebellion and our fallen nature. We need to allow Christ to head up our being. And we need to separate ourselves from death, which means we need to be swallowed up by Christ as life. Psalm 110 verse 3 tells us that we need to offer ourselves willingly to the Lord in the day of his warfare, in the splendor of our consecration. Saints, when we offer ourselves to the Lord and consecrate ourselves to him, that is a splendor to him. And then it says, your young men will be to you like the womb from the womb of the dawn. Saints, if we have a fresh consecration like this to the Lord every day, we will be one of the Lord's young men. We'll be young, we'll be fresh, we'll be living, we'll be active, and we will be to the Lord like the dew from the womb of the dawn. 
You know, what this indicates is that the dawn kind of points to our time with the Lord in the morning. And what happens is when we get into the womb of, of our morning time with the Lord, we become to him like the dew from the womb of the dawn. What happens is, is we get into Christ, Christ gets into, into us to such an extent that we're united with him, mingle with him, and incorporated with him to such an extent that we become due to him for his refreshment and enjoyment. Now let's come to B. B says Daniel shows us the characteristics of men who turn the age. Now again, I have to go quicker, so I won't have time to, to read a number of these verses. I hope you read them on your own. One says Daniel was separated from an age that followed Satan. We need to be the same way. Lord, separate us from this satanic age and from this age that follows Satan. Two says Daniel was joined to God's desire through God's word. So Daniel didn't just read God's word, which we need to do, but he joined himself to God's desire through his word. How did he do that? He read God's word and he prayed God's word back to God. So if you look at Daniel 2 through 4, in, in verse 3, Daniel says, I set my face toward the Lord God to seek him in prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And uh, he said this. He said that his prayer to the Lord, uh, let me find this, this phrase where he uses this. He said that he prayed to the Lord. Actually, his prayer to the Lord was for the Lord's sake. It was for the Lord's sake. It was for the Lord's sanctuary. It wasn't for Daniel's sake. It was for God's interest. That's why we need to join ourselves to God's desire through God's word. Three says, Daniel cooperated with God through his prayer. We know that Daniel had a habit of praying at fixed times uh, three times a day in Daniel 6.10. I hope we would have fixed times to pray to the Lord. And of course, we need to pray to the Lord in an unceasing way. But we also have, need to have certain fixed times that we pray to the Lord. And saints, I love this statement. Listen to this. Daniel depended on prayer to do what man could not do. And he depended on prayer to understand what man could could not understand. That's how we should be. We need to depend on prayer in the same way. Now we'll come to four. Four says Daniel was a self-sacrificing person with a spirit of martyrdom. And saints, um, we shouldn't be afraid of this word martyrdom. Actually, of course, there's physical martyrdom, but there's also psychological martyrdom. There's even spiritual martyrdom. What is psychological martyrdom? 
Psychological martyrdom is when we have to totally reject ourselves, when we have to contact the all-inclusive spirit with the element of Christ's killing death for the killing of ourself. That's psychological martyrdom. And you may say, well, what is spiritual martyrdom? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians, I'll give you an example. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul urged Apollos to come to the Corinthians uh, a number of times. He said, Apollos, you must go. Now, surely, I think we realize Paul had such a level of maturity in life that if he urged me to go to Corinth, I wouldn't even question it. But he urged Apollos a number of times. And here's what Paul said. It is, it is not at all his desire, Apollos' desire, to come to you at the present time. And Paul just received that. Paul had no problem with that. But Paul had to reject and put to death even the, the direct sense he had from the Lord in the intuition of his spirit. There's a spiritual martyrdom. Of course, there's physical martyrdom also. We need to be such a self-sacrificing person who rejects ourselves, lives by another life, and uh, we become the Lord's witnesses. Actually, in Acts 1.8, to be the Lord's witness is the same Greek word for martyr. Okay, now in Roman numeral 5, we come to Job, the end of Job. It says, then, Job, then Jehovah answered Job in chapter 38. And then it says, then Job answered Jehovah in chapter 42.1. And then it says, and Jehovah turned the captivity of Job. I love this. Sometimes we're in captivity to ourself. We just can't break out of ourself. Uh, maybe we might be offended by something, offended by someone, and it all has to do with being in ourself. And so we're in captivity to ourself. Well, if we if we really talk to the Lord, Jehovah will answer us. Then we will speak back to Jehovah and he will turn our captivity. Now we'll come to A. A says the logic of Job's friends was according to the line of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in their thinking that Job's sufferings were a matter of God's judgments. Judgment. However, Job's sufferings were God's consuming that God might gain Job so that he might gain God more. So all of the sufferings that Job was passing through was for the purpose of God gaining Job so that Job might gain God more. You know, at the beginning of Job, Job was a self-contented person. Job was a complacent person. Even at a certain point in Job, it tells us that his friends, which, you know, they had three rounds of big debates, at the end of the third round, they kind of made the decision, we're not going to talk anymore because Job had made the determination that he was righteous. In other words, Job was self-righteous in his eyes. Well, eventually God had to take him through all these things. 
Then God appeared to him. Uh, God spoke to him. And Job realized that he was actually nothing, that his, his own righteousness meant nothing. He, saw, he actually saw God. He abhorred himself. He repented in dust and ashes because he saw God. He loved God. He gained God, and he denied himself. Now, under this one says, God's intention with Job was to tear down the natural Job and his perfection and uprightness, that he might build up a renewed Job in God's nature and attributes. God's intention was to usher Job into a deeper seeking after God, that Job might realize that what he was short of in his human life was God himself, and that he might pursue God, gain God, and express God. You know, I can never forget Brother Lee saying this. He said, I always get concerned when I feel myself becoming contented or becoming content with where I am. And Brother Lee even, even warned uh, the leading brothers. He said, don't ever become a contented person in which you are contented with the amount of experience of God you have, the amount of God you gain, the amount of your being that God has gained. Don't ever be content in that respect. Always seek after God in a deeper way. Now, three says God's intention was to have a Job in the line of the tree of life and to make Job a man of God. Now, let's come to B. B says Job reveals that the Bible, we said this before, uh, the Bible of 66 books. This is a great thing, saints, what I'm reading here. Where can you find this in any library? Go to any seminary. Go to any library in London. You're in Germany. I hope some of you from Germany are, are watching this. I, I, there's one city in Germany. I can't remember it right now. But it's a great theological center. You can go to their theological library. Look at the books. Do any of those books tell you that the Bible of 66 books is for only one thing? And what is that one thing? It's for God in Christ, by the Spirit, to dispense himself into us, to be our life, our nature, and our everything, so that we may live Christ and express Christ this should be the principle that governs our life. Oh, may this be the principle that governs our life, brothers and sisters, so that we can bring the Lord back. Now, finally, C says, the way to live and work in this principle is to be and do everything by the Spirit, with the Spirit, in the Spirit, and through the Spirit, by exercising the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 tells us to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. Romans 8.4 says that we should walk according to the Spirit. Philippians 3.3 says we should serve by the Spirit of God. Romans 2.7 says we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 22.17 and A 
show us that at the very end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride have become one entity. Because it says the Spirit and the Bride say, they speak together as one person. So the Spirit has dispensed himself into us and has saturated our entire tripartite being, spirit, soul, and body, until we have become exactly the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead for his corporate expression in glory to this whole universe. And that is why we need to do, be and do everything by the Spirit, with the Spirit, in the Spirit, and through the Spirit by exercising our spirit so that we become his bride and we are fully saturated with him and soaked with him as the Spirit to be one entity. What is that one entity? That one entity is the new Jerusalem, which is a great God-man which is the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ. The new Jerusalem is a person. We are becoming the new Jerusalem by doing everything in the Spirit and by the Spirit through the exercise of our spirit. Okay, I will stop here. I hope you can see that from this that Noah, Daniel, and Job are patterns of living and overcoming life on the line of life to fulfill the economy of God and that we need to live and work according to the vision of the age to change the age. Okay, I'll stop here. I hope we can have some good uh, sharing after this message. Praise the Lord, saints.